Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Hi, everybody. Doing another live episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast. You know, I decided to do another evening podcast because the one that I did on Sunday night seemed to get more views, I think, quicker than the podcast that I've been doing earlier in the day. So if you prefer the evening podcast, and I know it's all relative because people listen to these podcasts all around the world but I still have the majority of my audience in the United States. And so it is evening. I'm doing this at 8 p.m. Eastern time in the United States. So what I did on Sunday, I think I started that at nine o'clock. I wanted to make sure everybody was finished watching the masters. I didn't want to interfere with that. Uh, But today, you know, it's a Tuesday night, nothing's really going on. So hopefully I picked a good time, but if you prefer, the evening podcast. Let me know in the comments, you know, like it, give it, you know, the thumbs up, whatever. But I just had a feeling that maybe it was better than than doing it earlier in the day. So I want to start off this podcast by talking about something that I meant to include in the Sunday podcast, but I forgot about it. And it's kind of ironic because I made a big deal about how CNBC didn't cover the trade data, the trade deficit that came out. And then I forgot about the jobs report. Now, I mentioned the jobs report casually in the podcast without actually getting into the March jobs report, which was the big economic release of Friday. And I totally intended to talk about it and then completely forgot. I mean, that's because, you know, I do it a live, basically unscripted podcast. I mean, I have a couple of notes. And in fact, I had it in my notes to talk about the jobs report, then completely forgot about it. So I want to start off the podcast on Tuesday and and get into this jobs report before it loses its relevance. Now, no, there is another economic number coming out tomorrow. I thought about maybe holding off the podcast until then. We're getting the CPI data tomorrow. So I'll talk about that on my next podcast. It's probably going to be on Friday unless something really crazy happens, and then maybe I'll do another one before then. But getting to the jobs report that came out on Friday, and the interesting thing about this jobs report is it came out when the markets were closed because it was Good Friday. So the stock market was closed. uh, The gold market was closed. So there really was no reaction uh, to the jobs data on Friday. But the data came out because it comes out the first Friday of every month. And it just so happens that this was a holiday for Good Friday. So in any way, the, the number came out 
And it was pretty much in line with expectations. I've got it here. 236,000 non-farm payroll jobs were added in March. The unemployment rate remains stable at 3.5%. And the labor force participation rate notched up by a tenth. And I think it's now back to where it was before the COVID lockdowns, which was still pretty low because remember, labor force participation had been falling steadily before we went into the COVID lockdowns. It just accelerated that pace during the lockdowns and has now recovered to the low level that it was at before COVID. But getting back to the the, the meat of the report, it was generally well-received because it wasn't worse than estimates. Because remember, we had gotten a lot of bad news. We got the non-farm payroll uh, I mean, the the, the uh, ADP number on Wednesday was much weaker than expected. The JOLTS number was much weaker than expected. We had a big jump. I don't know if I even mentioned this on the podcast on uh, on Sunday, but on Thursday, the unemployment claims really spiked up, um, and they were revised way up the prior week. Huge upward revisions. I mean, maybe forty, fifty thousand. Uh, new claims that weren't originally reported. I, I forgot the exact numbers, but it was very, you know, out of the ordinary to see that kind of revision in a weekly unemployment number. And and so we had all that bad news on the jobs. And so I think the markets maybe expected, okay, we're going to get some bad news from uh, the official non-farm payroll. And at least superficially, we didn't get it. But again, if you look beneath the surface, you can see a lot of the bad news. First of all, the reason and the only reason that we didn't disappoint and the number didn't come out 30 or 40,000 below estimates was because governments, and this is local governments, state governments as well, added 47,000 jobs during the month. And that was about 40,000 more than expected, I think. It was a huge uh, number for the government. Private sector payrolls were actually about thirty to 40,000 below what had been expected. So the only reason that we met expectations was because these governments went on a hiring spree. But there's a big difference between private sector jobs and government jobs. Right? Private sector jobs, by and large, are productive because they're created by for-profit enterprises that wouldn't be hiring people unless doing so was making their businesses more profitable. And so therefore they are adding some benefit uh, to the economy based on their contribution to generating profits. And profits are a good thing because it means that you are providing value to your customers. You are providing goods and services that are worth more than what they're willing to pay. Otherwise they wouldn't buy them. And so it's a net positive. Government workers on the other hand are not added because they add to productivity. If anything, they subtract from productivity. The more government bureaucrats are on the job, the less productive everybody else is because what they're doing is they're regulating and trying to micromanage and getting in the way of the productivity of the private sector. So the more government workers we have, the worse off we are. So it's not good news that the government hired a bunch of people. That's bad news, especially for taxpayers who are on the hook to cover the cost of these government workers. See, that's the other big difference between the private sector hiring somebody and the government. If some private business hires somebody, doesn't bother me, I don't have to pay. 
It's not, I'm not getting the bill. It's being paid for out of the profitability of that company. But when the government hires somebody, they have to get the money from the taxpayers, which would include me uh, and everybody else. We all have to pay the salaries of these government workers. So this is bad news. The fact that lots of people got hired means that the taxpayer is on the hook for covering those costs. So this is bad news all around. We don't want to celebrate when governments hire more people. It would be relief if governments fired some people and now freed up that labor to be employed productively in the private sector and free up the taxpayer of the obligation of having to cover the costs of their salaries and their benefits. And in many cases, the benefits are really what we end up paying for because they retire and they have this cushy pension that lasts indefinitely. Uh, so it really was bad news. But also, if you look at, again, the components, the composition of these jobs, number one, 72,000 jobs, again, leisure and hospitality. These are not great jobs. These are uh, you know, housekeepers, waiters and waitresses. Not that I'm demeaning uh, the job, but I mean, you know, these are not the highest paying jobs. Most people don't aspire, you know, to work in a bar or a restaurant or a hotel. I mean, unless they're the manager or something like that. But the, a lot of these jobs are part-time jobs. They don't have benefits. Uh, so these are not the great jobs. The great jobs are the ones that are being lost. You know, a lot of these big tech companies are laying people off. These people are losing high paying jobs very uh, desirable jobs that are, that are going away and they're being replaced uh, by, by you know, these Mickey Mouse type jobs. Um, then healthcare, number two, over 50,000 healthcare jobs. Again, a lot of these people aren't doctors, they're, they're orderlies, you know, they're janitors working in uh, healthcare, right? These are not necessarily doctors getting jobs, right? Making the big bucks. And then government was number three. That was the third biggest category behind leisure and hospitality healthcare, and then, and then it was government. Look at stuff like manufacturing. Those are high paying jobs that we need. We lost another 1,000 manufacturing jobs. And financial services, as you can imagine, uh, lost another 1,000 jobs there. Now those are higher paying jobs, but of course these banks are laying off a lot of workers as they're imploding, right? So the good jobs are going away and they're being replaced with bad jobs. And in many cases, the numbers are going up because somebody loses one good job and they replace it with two or three bad jobs. And so now there's a net gain of jobs, but maybe there's a net loss of pay. There's certainly a net gain in hours worked. Somebody's working three jobs instead of one, but making less money in three jobs combined than they made when they just had one. But none of that stuff gets picked up in these numbers. So this was not a, a good number. Uh, and I expect more bad numbers to come out of the Labor Department as the recession, depression, whatever you want to recall what we're in, gets worse. So that, that sums up what happened on Friday. But now I really want to talk about what happened on Monday. Because, you know, on my Sunday podcast, I said, you know, I think the dollar's about to tank, gold's about to take off. And sure enough, what happened on Monday is the dollar spiked and gold dropped about $20. It got well below, or not well below, but it got you know maybe 10 bucks below or so, 2,000 again. So we had this big sell-off, you know, I mean, big is, you know, not big, but, you know, sell-off in gold and a rally in the dollar, the opposite of what I, I said was going to happen, although I didn't say it was going to happen in one day. Uh, but just, you know, generally 
you know, you get this kind of stuff. You say one thing and the markets immediately do the opposite. But what's interesting about that is why the news that the markets reacted to. So what happened was the new governor of the Bank of Japan gave a speech and it was in the evening in Japan. So I guess it was still the morning uh, here in the U.S. when the speech was was given. And a lot of people probably expected this guy to say something about, you know, we've got to tighten our policy a little bit. After all, you got 4% inflation in Japan. I think that's the most recent number. That's a 40-year high, 4%. Of course, we would love to have 4% here, uh, but they got 4% in Japan. And interest rates are still negative. I think it's negative 10 basis points is their overnight rate. And the Bank of Japan is still pegging the yield on a 10-year JGB at 50 basis points, a half of 1%. Right? They're targeting that yield. They're printing yen and buying Japanese government bonds to keep 10-year yields below a half a percent when inflation is 4%. So highly inflationary monetary policy, meaning that inflation is going to get worse. You know, It's not going down from four, it's going up. So people probably thought, okay, you know, the, the, this guy's going to say something. He's going to, you know, hey, we got to change course. We got to tighten policy. We got to do something about inflation. But instead of saying that, this guy came out and said, everything's great. First of all, he praised the Bank of Japan, his predecessors, and the government for their courageous and successful policies to save Japan from the horrors of, of deflation. Right? This was like this terrible threat. And thank God we were able to uh, you know, save the economy. And now that we have this 4% inflation, well, that's great because this shows that the threat has been extinguished, that this wise, prudent policy uh, has borne fruit. And now we can all celebrate because we have this 4% inflation. I mean, I'm embellishing what he said, but this is basically you know, what he meant. And this is all nonsense because there was never a threat of deflation. I mean, that's not even a threat. It's a good thing. And again, I'm talking about deflation the way these politicians want to misdefine it not as a shrinking of the money supply, which is really what the word means, but falling consumer prices. Now, Japan actually had years where the CPI went down. I mean, no other country really had that. I mean, all the time we talked about deflation, we never actually had a year where consumer prices went down. But there actually were several years in Japan where the CPI was negative. Now, it wasn't negative by a big number, 0.1, 0.2, stuff like that. There was only one year that I can find in all of recent history, where prices dropped by more than 1% in a given year. And I think it was 1.2 or 1.3. And that was 2009, right? The Great Recession, the year following the 2008 financial crisis. So it took that. And in that environment, prices were down a little over 1%. Now, what the Japanese government was doing is looking at inflation of just below zero, and looking at a weak economy in Japan and making the false conclusion that the economy was weak because inflation was low. And again, that's like making the conclusion that it's raining because the sidewalks are wet, right? No, you, you've got it backwards. The fact that prices were down in Japan, that wasn't a problem. That was a benefit. It was a partial solution to a problem because if the economy was weak, it would have been even weaker if prices have gone up. Prices going down provided some relief to the consumer 
which actually helps the economy. So it was never a threat of falling prices. But now they have a much bigger problem of rising prices, but the Bank of Japan does not even want to recognize this new threat, which is real. You've got 4% inflation, that's gonna to go to five, six, seven, eight, and the Bank of Japan is doing nothing about it. They keep the pedal to the metal, interest rates stay at zero or negative 0.1. They're gonna to continue to print yen to, to cap the yield on 10-year government bonds at half a percent. And what does that mean? That means inflation is gonna keep getting worse. Now, when is the Bank of Japan going to acknowledge that they have too much of a good thing? I don't know, because they can't afford to do anything about it because they're in a box, because there's now so much debt out there, because they kept rates so low for so long, and because they printed so many yen to buy up all these bonds that they can't fight inflation. So instead of fighting it, they're pretending it's it's not a threat, right? It's like, you know, instead you're, you're getting chased out of town, so you pretend like you're leading a parade. And that's what the Bank of Japan is doing. They're leading the inflation parade. They're trying to make everybody in Japan think this is a good thing. Well, they all know it's a bad thing. And this bad thing is about to get a lot worse. Now, of course, when this news came out, the market reacted in a perverse and illogical way. The markets did the opposite of what they should have done, at least with respect gold. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. So the incoming head of the Bank of Japan comes out and says, everything is great. No need to change policy. Uh, we dodged a bullet of deflation. Everything is great, right? This 4% inflation we got now well, it's a good thing because it may it means that we no longer have to worry about the dreaded deflation. We we now we now can breathe a collective sigh of relief that the cost of living is going up, and we don't have to worry that the things that we need might get less expensive. We we can all sleep soundly knowing that everything we need to buy will be more expensive when we wake up. Right? That this is basically what these idiots are expecting us to believe. But when the announcement came out the dollar immediately shot up. Why? Because the yen went down and the weakness in the yen kind of dragged down all the other currencies. Why was the yen weak? Well, because the Bank of Japan's not gonna hike rates, they're not gonna slow down QE. And so yes, that is negative for the yen. And so the yen went down. And of course, the opposite side of that is the dollar goes up. It's you know a seesaw. One goes down, the other has to go up, right? That's how it works in foreign exchange. 
Well, the minute the dollar goes up, everybody starts selling gold. And so gold dumped, uh, you know, about 20 bucks, right? Back, back below 2000, even got below 1990, I think, uh, on the lows. Now, why? Think about this for a second. The Bank of Japan, a major central bank, is okay with inflation, thinks it's good, and wants it to continue, and is going to do nothing about it. Interest rates are going to stay negative. Not only are real rates negative in Japan, but you got nominal rates negative in Japan too, right? I mean, it's crazy. That is good for gold. That is bullish. The more central banks around the world and the more governments are going to consign their populations to perpetual inflation, that their currency is going to lose value. Every year, they're going to be taxed by inflation. You create an incentive to get rid of that currency. You create an incentive incentive to own gold instead of that currency. So now you have all these people in Japan, and there's a lot of money in Japan, very wealthy country. They have a lot of savings. The Bank of Japan is telling Japanese savers, you are going to lose wealth every single year. If you stay in the yen, you are guaranteed to lose. We are not going to fight inflation. We are going to create inflation. That is an incentive for the Japanese to convert their yen into real money, gold, to preserve their purchasing power. So the more central banks that are acting recklessly and are accepting high inflation as a way of life, that is bullish for gold. So what was announced by the Bank of Japan was positive for gold. It's just that these gold traders, they don't get that. They just trade off these algorithms, dollar up, gold down. They don't really care, right? They don't know what they're doing. They're on autopilot. But that simply gives smart people the opportunity to buy. Because I think any dip below 2,000, that's your buy. You know, 2,000 is kind of like the bargain basement right now. You get a chance to buy gold below 2,000, you do it. The question is, how much longer is gold going to give you that opportunity? As I am recording this podcast now on Tuesday night, gold is back at 2,005. So we're back above. We're up about 12 bucks today. So we recovered uh, the loss uh, from. Uh, Monday on those Bank of Japan comments. Now, I want to talk a little bit, though, about fool's gold, Bitcoin. People think I'm ignoring it because it keeps going up and I haven't talked about it as much. Well, now Bitcoin is back above 30,000. As I'm recording the podcast right now, let me check. It's at 30,338. So significantly above the low, I think it got down around 16,000. I, I forget the exact low, but obviously, you know, we've not quite doubled, maybe 80% up from that from that low. And of course, all the Bitcoin bulls are out in force now. The I told you so's, we're going to the moon. I was watching or listening, I wasn't watching because I was in my golf cart and I was listening to uh, the radio and I, I've, got, I've got CNBC on there, on XM Sirius. And, um, Mike Novogratz comes on, you know, perma bull, Bitcoin pumper, Mike Novogratz, who was, you know, bullish all the way down. And he was saying that 30,000 was the bottom and then 25,000, then 20,000, right, as he kept falling. And he's on CNBC. And instead of kind of challenging him for all of his bad forecasts and how high, you know, he was predicting it, they were just patting him on the back like, hey, you were right. Look, Bitcoin is rallying it. It's back above 30,000. You were right the whole time. It was nothing but softballs from Joe Quernan and all the other 
Bitcoin pumpers on CNBC, right, who are just, you know, buttering this guy up with, you know, you know these softball questions. Uh, and they're just, you know, this is great. Bull bar, you know, the crypto winter is over. Buy Bitcoin. And, you know, I'm listening to this guy. And a couple of the things that he said, actually, I think, were uh, noteworthy. Not so much because, you know, of how what he said, but what he inadvertently admitted without actually realizing that it was negative. So one of the things he admitted to was that the buying that he's seen that has lifted Bitcoin back above 30,000 has come pretty much entirely from the existing Bitcoin community. The hodlers have just bought more and maybe other hodlers are just refraining from selling. And so the people who already own Bitcoin have decided to buy more. It's not that there's new adoption. And he admitted that the institutions are not there, right? The institutional money that everybody thought was going to come in is MIA, right? The institutions aren't buying. So there's no new money coming in. It's the same money. It's the same people, which tells you that the rally is unsustainable. Because in order to keep a Ponzi going or a pyramid or chain letter, however you want to describe it, you need new people. You need new money coming in, new buyers. If the people, the only people who are buying are the people who are already in, well, then nobody is actually getting out. None of the Bitcoin hodlers are cashing out anything. They're just buying more. And when they want to cash out, who are they going to cash out to? There's no new buyers coming in to sell to. So the market is going to implode. And I think when this thing cracks, it's going to implode very quickly because you don't have the new buyers that maybe had been there in previous rallies. They're not there. Now, uh, Novogratz was acting like this was a good thing. It shows how much confidence the Bitcoiners have in Bitcoin that they're willing to buy more, right? He's making lemon lemonade out of lemons. And of course, the CNBC guys just, oh yeah, that's, you know, they didn't challenge him on how ridiculous this is. They, you know, they just accept this BS that, it, that it's good. But then the other thing that Novogratz admitted, you know, that, you know, the CNBC just, you know, gives him a pass on this is that he mentioned that the high prices, the fact that it's gone up has, is helping because to the extent that people who own Bitcoin can convince their friends to buy it too, that it's a lot easier when the market is going up. So he said, when the market is up and there's a big rally, now all the Bitcoiners can tell their friends how exciting it is and how much money they're making and kind of get them, get them to get in on it. Which in other words, is he's admitting, well, it's all pump and dump. We just need the market to go up so that we can sucker people into buying because they think it's going to keep going up. Right? So it's just all this gigantic pump getting ready for a dump. And this is kind of what he admitted to without actually admitting to it. But again, you just got to listen to what he's saying. He obviously knows this is going on. But again, CNBC completely ignores the strength in gold and instead keeps focusing on what's happening in fool's gold the Bitcoin rally is completely unsustainable, and that's why CNBC is covering it. The gold rally is just getting started, is very sustainable, and of course, CNBC completely ignores it. Another thing I wanted to talk about on this podcast while I'm thinking about you know stupidity, and this is something that I read is going on in California. And this is an example of how governments completely 
don't understand the concepts of, of moral hazard or incentives and never learn from their prior mistakes. So they're launching this new program in California and it applies to people who have incomes of under 200 and something thousand a year. I forget what the, the cutoff was, 210, 220,000. So, I mean, you know, it's not low income. I mean, 200,000 a year, I guess, even in California is still considered a decent income, right? And anybody that earns 200,000 or, or less is eligible for this, this government program, right? Now, what is the program? The program is for housing. And what the government will do, if you wanna buy a house, the government will loan you the 20% down payment, 100% of it, and the government will loan you the money to pay 100% of your closing costs. So in other words, the California government is going to allow people in California to buy a house with zero money out of pocket. They can you know, buy a house, it costs nothing, right? Which means there's no risk. If the price of the house goes down, well, you know, you can walk away from your mortgage. You haven't lost anything because you have zero skin in the game. Now, you would think that California would have learned a little bit from the 2008 financial crisis. One of the reasons that housing prices went down so much is because people had no skin in the game or very little skin in the game. They bought with zero down or relatively little down. Well, this is what California is going to enable people to do. Buy with nothing down. Now, here's the, 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 the real you know, icing on this ridiculous cake. These loans have no interest. So let's say you want to buy a million-dollar house, and so California loans you $200,000 for the down payment. And so then you pay $200,000 of taxpayer money to whoever's selling you that house, and now you've got an $800,000 mortgage, you also owe the state of California 200000 but there are no payments on that money at all. No interest, no principal, nothing. It's only due when you sell the property or you refinance the property, then it's due. But until then, you don't have to pay anything. And the only thing that California gets for all this risk is when you sell, if there's any profit, the state gets 20% of your profits. So they get their principal back without any interest. And then if there's a profit, so let's say that $1 million house becomes a $2 million house and you sell it for $2 million. Well, you pay back California the 200,000 you borrowed and then you give them an extra 200,000. And so you only made 800,000 instead of a million because you only owned 80% of the house and California owned 20%. And maybe to a politician, this sounds fair, but it's not fair because California isn't putting up 20% of the money. It's putting up 100% of the money because the down payment is the only money that's being used to buy the house. So in other words, the, that the person who's buying the house is free rolling on the taxpayer's money. Yes, he only gets 80% of the profits, but he gets 80% of the profits putting up 0% of the money. California puts up 100% of the money and only gets 20% of the profits. But of course, if there are no profits, let's say there's losses, let's say this 100,000, this million dollar house goes down to 500,000 and the buyer walks away and it gets sold for 500,000, 
then California eats 100% of the loss, and the home buyer has no loss, which is why everybody is going to rush to take this money, because it's heads, the, the citizen wins, tails, the government loses, meaning the taxpayers. So this is an asinine program. It will cause people who would not have otherwise bought homes to buy them. And it also will cause them to have no regard for the price because they're not paying any money. They just want to get into the house. And in fact, the more expensive the house, the better. Because if you're going to get 80% of the appreciation of the house and, have, and put nothing down, you want to buy the most expensive house you could qualify for. Because the appreciation then will be more, right? Let's say prices go up by 10%. Well, if you buy a million dollar house and prices go up by 10%, that's a hundred grand. 80,000 of that belongs to you. But if you buy a $200,000 house and prices go up 10%, well, that's only 20 grand and you get 16. So people could do the math. Everybody wants to buy the biggest house that they can qualify for because it's all somebody else's money. And they want to get the appreciation on a big number not the appreciation on a small number. Now, normally you might not do that because you're also, you know, there's risk. You know, you might make more money on an expensive house, but you could lose more money on an expensive house. But no, not with this program. You can't lose anything. No matter how much you pay for the house, it's impossible for you to lose. So you have zero downside and only upside. So you want to maximize your upside and you don't, couldn't care less about your downside. This is the moral hazard that these idiots in Sacramento have created. And of course, why are they trying to do this? Well, because houses are too expensive. People can't afford to buy them at the current price with interest rates this high. What is the market solution to this problem? Obvious, real estate prices come down. That's the solution. If you can't afford something, the price comes down and then you can afford it. But the California politicians are trying to prevent that solution. They don't want a real solution that will work. They want a government solution that preserves inflated housing prices. So one way to prevent housing prices from going down is to create these incentives for people to use government money to overpay for houses without any worry that the price might go down. So all this is going to backfire. It's going to hurt California. It's going to hurt taxpayers. Now, there's only a certain amount of money that they've set aside for this program. And they're going to run out of that money a lot quicker than they think because everybody is going to want to qualify for it. You know, and a lot of people might even take adjustable rate mortgages. I mean, they don't care. You know, they don't even need a fixed rate mortgage. They're, they're not, they, they just want to get into that thing and hope they can get some appreciation and then they can sell and make a profit, right? It's, it, it, it's a risk-free opportunity to make a bunch of money. I mean, so why rent when you can do this? Because if you rent, you have no chance of making any money because you don't own anything. I mean, maybe renting makes more sense economically, but it doesn't come with a free lottery ticket. But if you buy a house on the taxpayer money, that comes with a free lottery ticket because if real estate prices go up, you get rich. If real estate prices go down, you don't lose any money. So why not do it? So this is what uh, the government is, is creating, uh, this moral hazard, which is just you know gonna, gonna blow up. And, and finally, well, I'll just make one more point because I was reading another article uh, about the Social Security trust funds running out of money. They just came out with these new articles that the Social Security trust funds are going to now run out of money a couple of years earlier than they thought, right? 
and which is bad news because, you know, there's going to be no money to pay benefits. Well, there's no money now. Again, nobody points this out. And I pointed it out on a prior podcast. These Social Security trust funds and all government trust funds are already broke. There is no money there. All that's there are government bonds. And how could you claim that the government bond is an asset to the government? Because what would the government do if there was no Social Security trust fund right now? How would the government pay Social Security benefits? Well, it would sell bonds to the public or the Federal Reserve and then get money and, and pay the benefits. Well, how are they paying them now out of the trust fund? They're selling bonds to the public or to the Federal Reserve and then giving the money to people on Social Security, except the government isn't selling directly. It's selling indirectly through the trust funds because the trust fund is selling the bond instead of the Treasury. But the trust fund is, is the government. It's all... The same thing. It's your right hand, your left hand. It doesn't make a difference. It's government. The only way these trust funds would have assets would be if they were not simultaneously the government's liabilities. So let's say the Social Security Trust Fund had German government bonds. Then it would have an asset, you know, or Japanese government bonds or, you know, maybe corporate bonds. Or what if it owned stock and companies? Yeah, then there'd be an asset that they could sell. But when the only asset is your own liability, you have no asset. Again, it's like writing yourself a check. If I write myself a check for a million dollars, am I going to say, hey, I got a million dollars. Look, see, I've got this check for a million dollars. Yeah, but I owe myself the million dollars. I wrote the check. You know, Now, a lot of people, if they wrote a check for a million dollars, it wouldn't even clear. It would bounce. But it doesn't matter if you never cash it. You could write yourself a million-dollar check that you never cash. Is anyone going to claim that they got a million dollars because they wrote themselves a bum check? No. Well, that's what the government does. They write themselves these IOUs, and then they claim these IOUs represent assets, and they ignore the fact that they also represent liabilities. So all these articles that were talking about this bad news that these trust funds would run out of money a couple of years sooner, they, they already have no money. None of it matters. And what's really going to matter is when nobody wants these U.S. government bonds, when, it's the only, when the Fed is the only buyer, when no one else is dumb enough to buy them. And that means even more money has to be created by the Fed to pay for them. And that means inflation runs out of control. And so, again, it doesn't matter if you get your Social Security benefits in the mail. What's going to matter is that when you go to spend them, you're not going to be able to buy anything because the prices are going to go up too much. And so your benefits are going to be inflated away. You might get paid the money, but the money's not going to have any value when you receive it. Anyway, that's it for today. I want to remind everybody I am doing another Q&A for the Shift Premium members directly after this podcast ends. So as soon as I stop talking uh, on the podcast, I'm going to start taking the Q&A. And so if you want to get in on that, you got to go to Shift Radio Premium and sign up. Again, it's only five bucks a month to become a premium member, and you can take part in, in, in these uh, questions and answers. And it's not you know j important just to ask the questions, but a lot of times my answers, even if they're not your own questions, a lot of people ask very interesting questions. And even if you don't ask the question, I think you'll benefit from hearing my answers. Uh, and so we're gonna do that. And you know, so, and if you can't make today's show, because by the time you, you watch this, you know, you're not watching it live, you, maybe you watch it tomorrow, uh, just sign up because then you'll be able to make the next uh, Q&A. And again, you can do that at shiftpremium.com or at, at Locals because it's the, the Locals community where we're doing 
uh, the live Q&As. Anyway, that's it for now. I will do at least one more podcast this week, maybe two. So make sure and, you know, and, and stay tuned for messages, you know, watch it on Twitter. Or if you, if you're signed, if you subscribe to my YouTube channel, everybody should be subscribing. If you're not, every time I do one of these live podcasts, you immediately get an alert on YouTube that they started. And then you have the opportunity to see them live. Anyway, bye for now. And I'll be back soon uh, with some more episodes of the Peter Schiff Show. Thank you.